Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And uh, we are back again for another Monday. I was about to say Tuesday, but a Monday, and it's just me and our faithful friend, Henry Sledge. Jeff Copsetta is not with us tonight. And so, you know, Henry, I had a thought. And, uh, you know, the last time Jeff wasn't here, we went on and had a John Bazalone expert on because, well, that's Jeff's favorite thing. And I thought since Jeff wasn't here tonight that you and I could do a good 45 minutes on the joys of model building <laughs> so that when Jeff comes back next week and wants to talk about his love for the hobby of model building, we can say, sorry, this Jeff. We, did hey, it last we already week. covered that, man. We're moving on. Yeah, we, you know, we got to keep it fresh. Got to keep it moving. So <laughs> sit down, relax, grab your bourbon, grab your model glue, and let's get going with the joys of World War II model building. Uh, well, no, I, I, I used to build World War II models, and I'd kind of like to get back into it. But uh, but we'll definitely but save yeah, that we, for next we, week. We know we want to do that one with Jeff, because he's certainly done a lot more of that than I have. Now, one of the things that was probably more popular when you were a kid, and myself as a kid in the late 70s and 80s, were the model rockets. Not World I War II. I did model rockets, yeah. The Estes. Yeah, those are the ones you would launch. They're two-phase uh, rockets. You launch them up. They would pop off and the parachute down, and they would make huge ones. Yeah, that would damn near really that. <laughs> that would damn near go into orbit. And uh, I remember I I knew one guy who actually had a a rudimentary tracking device for him because those expensive oh, ones wow. they would go far and then they would just go yeah. travel miles, and you could potentially be out hundreds of dollars on those things. Not to mention hours. Mm-hmm. Now, for the casual listeners at home, saying, "What's this have to do with World War II?" It wasn't until I got into World War II and reenacting that I realized that those are basically <laughs> stripped down um, bazookas, <laughs> bazooka rockets. I, I did not know that. That's, well, that's pretty interesting. Well, but I remember those little engines you put in them and you lit them. And my brother and all his friends were really into that. And he he got me a rocket, and which was a cool thing for an older brother to do for his kid brother. And I remember we went out, we launched it, and it went up, and we never saw it again. Well, for those of you who've never launched these rockets, basically they're just a cardboard tube with some, um, yeah. uh, not bamboo, what's that real cheap wood? Balsa wood. Yeah, balsa wood fins, a That's plastic it, tube, and a parachute. And you would slide this little rocket engine in it, and then basically you would put a little V-prong piece of aluminum in it, or almost like a matchstick, right? You'd put it up there, but it was made yeah. out of aluminum. You would connect two alligator clips, and it ran 100 yards to a push button that had a 9-volt battery in it. Well, when you're watching those World War II movies and you see the bazooka man sitting there, just think of uh, Band of Brothers, and they're putting the rocket in there, and he's back there fiddling. He said, you're going to get me killed. Well, what he's doing is hooking up two alligator clips because inside the bazooka is a trigger with a 9-volt battery. Yeah. So I don't know this for fact, but I would assume we all know that after the war, you had all these companies manufacturing this stuff. And they either had to re-gear and manufacture something else, or they had to figure out a way to make a civilian equivalent. So my hypothesis is, and I'm sure I'm got to be similarly close, is they made smaller versions of the rockets that they put in the back of those bazookas. And that's yeah. what, I mean, that has to be the same. Because once again, you put one of those two-phase rockets, those motor, those engines in one of those cardboard tubes, those things would easily fly up two miles. 
Oh, yeah. They had yeah, some force I mean, behind them. So it would only, I mean, you take that same model rocket, you put in a PVC pipe, don't try this at home, and you aim it at something. If it has the right fins and the right balance, I'm sure it would fly just as far as a damn bazooka. Oh, yeah. Not that we're advocating any type of homemade explosive device. No, right? not not at all. I mean, this isn't the 80s. Are or we the still 90s. in Facebook jail? Um, n yes and no. Um, we okay. st We're streaming... We always stream to YouTube, and I post YouTube on Facebook. Um, we are out of Facebook jail as far as them no longer bearing our post. Um, right. For some reason, not to get too technical, but we restream through a program called Restream.io, and that right. that website allows me to put in accounts for Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. But for Facebook, for some reason, they will only allow me to either add my personal account or my mm -hmm. group page, whatsinyourhead.com. If I go in there and delete what's in your head and try to add what's the scuttlebutt or fail to fail, they don't even show up as options. So I don't mm -hmm. even have the ability to stream directly to the what's the scuttlebutt Facebook page through our service. Why? I don't know. I've contacted them. They don't have an answer. Um, mm -hmm. I've thought about actually deleting what's in your head and trying to stream to my D-Train page because that page actually technically has enough followers mm -hmm to qualify us for monetization whether it mm -hmm. happened or not i don't know but anyhow that's neither here nor there we are on twitch we are on twitter and uh we are on youtube and i want to thank the new youtube followers and um we're getting subscriptions up and for those you guys who followed us on patreon and i also want to thank you guys so much last week we kind of did a, a dual part episode which we haven't done in a long time uh, we had a guest on and then we did a replay of the Byron Vineyard interview and looking at the numbers, everyone, just about every one of you who downloaded part one, stuck around and downloaded and listened to part two, the numbers were damn near exactly. Great. So thank you guys that. for not only listening to the first half with uh Woodage and that great interview, but sticking around and listening to that replay we did with Byron Vineyard. Um, who was, a I meant to tell you about that, Don, um, of course, we had Paul and we were busy with him, but when I first heard about What's the Scuttlebutt before you guys had me on and then invited me to be a part of this, mm -hmm. that show with um, with Vineyard was one of the ones I listened to. Yeah. Because, you know, I was yeah. just scrolling through your website, just, oh, okay, let's, oh, here's one where they talk about, oh, yeah, I want to hear that. And the one with him just happened to be one that I listened to. Fantastic. So, that was a sorry to hear that he passed away. But you know, it's it's kind of weird because um, I've been doing not only this, but I do so many podcasts that I oftentimes forget who we've had on and, you know, interviews I've done. So when I saw right. the original post, I, as you saw, I texted Jeff, I was like, didn't we have him on the show? And he's like, absolutely. And so I went back. And, and so it's always kind of fun for me to go back and re-listen to it because it refreshes my memory and I get the right. And once there's that much space between me and the interview, it's almost like I'm listening to it as a listener, not as the person who actually did the interview. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's kind of new and fresh to me. And so that was, you know, I always enjoy going back and doing those as well. Um, you're, I, I was hoping Jeff was going to be on here tonight. Um, I watched two movies this weekend. Well, a movie and a, and a third, as I explained to you in a text message, you're like, how do you watch a third of a movie? <laughs> But um, I actually thought that was one of your talk text errors no, when I saw that. No, so I wasn't even going to ask you what it meant. It's just I'm like, okay, Don's talk texting, and we'll figure it out later. Before I get into this, I want to verify something. Now we all know from Memphis Bell and you know those type of movies that at least in in those bombers, 
the microphone system was the one around the neck, right? They had, mic, yeah. That was the only aviation communication device of the time. Am I correct on that or no? The I know the fighter pilots in the Pacific all use throat mics. Um, what about in European theater? I think I believe that's the only technology available, right? Oh man! If I, somebody out there, this is a really esoteric question. Well, no, is this like a? It's a, leading into something, which is okay, why right. I only Go watched ahead. one third of a movie. <laughs> Gotcha. We okay. all know from watching Iron Eagle in the late 80s movies that around the time of the F-16 and the F-14, they moved the microphone to the oxygen mask, right? Which made okay. sense yeah. that when they have it. And so when you watch Iron Eagle in those movies and they're talking, they kind of hold their oxygen mask close right. to their mouth so you can still see their pretty face on camera, but they're simulating the communication. We did not have that technology in World War II, correct? There was no aviation microphone built into the oxygen mask? I believe that's correct. Okay. I just watched Midway again last night. And yeah, I mean, have you, and I uh, once again, I was, I was hoping Jeff would be on here because you and him are both more into aviation than I am. Have you seen red wings? I have not. Me neither. And so I was on Amazon this weekend and I was in my bedroom looking for something to watch and red wings came on. I was like, okay, well the, the preview is up there. I was like, well, you know, I know that's an interesting story. Aviation. I need to kind of up, update my, Views on it, and I watch a lot of movies about a lot of things, but I don't watch a whole hell of a lot of aviation based movies. And you right. know, the month that, the it, month that it is great, let's watch this. So I turn on Red Wings, and I don't know why the dumbest thing ever. The first thing that bumped me was the font they used in, the, in all the actors' name, bright red, but anyhow, it's Red Wings, fine, whatever. Opening hmm. scene, they got the B. Well, you, you're talking about Red Tails, Red Tails. I'm sorry, not Red Wing, Red yeah. Tails. Have you seen that one? No, no, I have. Okay, so Red Tails. It's about the Tuskegee Airmen. So I was excited. I was great actors. Perfect time of the year to watch it. It's up on Amazon. Opening scene, you got your B-27s. The Flying Fortress is flying around. 17s. B-17s. Once again, I'm not in the aviation stuff. I should know at least <laughs> that part from Airborne. But anyhow, the B-17s are flying around, and they're, they're getting ready to go on their bombing runs. No, it's a B yeah, B-17 bombers. They're about to go on their bombing runs, and... You have your um, the escorts up there. I don't think what the Mustangs over in Europe. Well, well yeah, but I mean, starting out, P, I think the P thirty eight might have been flying P forties. P forties. Okay, so you got the P forties up there. Once this is why I'm trying to watch a movie. I'm trying to get up to speed with the aviation stuff. I'm I'm admittedly uh, dumb on ignorant on it. I have my strong points. That's why I have no, other I've never people said here. That. But I'll say it. So I'm ignorant on the subject of aviation, but that's why we have Jeff and Henry on here. You know, between the three of us, we cover a lot of ground. There you go. And we've never said we're experts in any certain topic. So I'm okay. watching this, and the the P-38 uh, squadron captain's like, hey, there's Germans. Let's go get them. And they take off, leaving everybody else unprotected. And then they cut to the inside scene. And, of course, the uh, captain of uh, one of the B-17s is like, oh, there they go, the glory hounds, leaving us unprotected. And then here come the Germans and just annihilate the American bomber ships. Okay, cool. So then they cut to, and at that point I was like, okay, I see the groundwork to land here, but I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to hold tight. And then they cut to like uh, the Tuskegee Airmen doing practice runs before they actually get to go to combat, right? I think they were over in North Africa or maybe Italy and they're just, their jobs is doing like strafing runs of railroad tracks and just targets mm -hmm. of opportunity. They weren't actually <laughs> engaging. 
Right. But every time they showed these guys communicating, because once again, these are actors, they don't want to have their oxygen mask on. They were doing the 1980 Iron Eagle, grabbing their oxygen mask and talking into them as if that was the microphone system. Well, that's a, that's a good observation. Um, <sighs> but yeah, I, I don't think they had oxygen, oxygen mask mics no, until later, but I could be wrong. I'm thinking maybe the Korean War when they started bringing the jets mm. in. But good anyhow, question. I'm watching it. And I'm I'm hurting, and then they cut to the scene where they're they're kind of introducing the characters, and just to me, it wasn't a World War II movie honoring Tuskegee Airmen. It was an action movie that took place in World War II, and mm -hmm. they're using the name of the and I I I just I probably turned it off after 15 minutes. I just couldn't. I was like, I can't do this, which bothered yeah. me. I really wanted to watch this movie, but the dialogue was horrible. The fact that they're talking in the mask. And they were using like more modern music and just, and I realized, oh, this isn't a World War II movie. This is a mo action movie that takes place in World War II. And I just, I lost interest mm -hmm. and I went the completely opposite way. Um, I know it's a World War II podcast, but we talk about military history. How are you familiar with the 1999 movie, The Trench? Actually, I'm not. The Trench is a 1999 British warm film directed by William Boyd and starring Paul Nicholas and, da uh, and Daniel Craig. You know who he is. He played 007 yeah. a years back. Mm -hmm. Are you also familiar with uh, Peaky Blinders? No. Peaky Blinders is a um, British TV show. It's post-World War One. after all the guys come home from war. Um, mm -hmm. It's a English, kind of Irish more English um, mob family. The, the wives and the women have been running things while the boys were off fighting World War One, and now they come back and are taking everything over. But anyhow, the reason I bring it up is the lead actor is uh, his name in the in the show is uh, Tommy, and mm -hmm. he's the head of the Peaky Blinders, and he's played by a gentleman named uh, Cillian Murphy, C I L L I A N, Cillian Murphy or Killian, Killian Murphy. Now, you know him as the pilot who had the nervous breakdown in the boat in uh, Dunkirk. Okay. The pilot yeah. who turned the boat around, we're not going. That, right. is, that right. is the lead character on, of Tommy on Peaky Blinders. Well, this movie okay. came out in 1999, and he, that must have been one of his first films. He was, probably, he was clearly like 17 years old in it. But well. anyhow, this is a World War I movie. The film paints a picture of soldiers' emotional experiences in the confines of the trenches and experiencing running the gamut from boredom to fear, panic and re uh, restlessness, basically three days up to the kickoff of the um, Psalms attack in World War One. Is it Psalms? Psalms. Yeah, S-O-M-M-E-S. Yes, yeah, so that's the one where 60,000 right. British soldiers died in one day. And so I'm... Okay, World War One movie. It's going back to this film, the 1999. It's pretty interesting. And so for you guys watching at home, I'm going to quickly play the trailer for this, and you guys can see it. Um, let me just make sure that you guys can see it. Sadly, um, the way we're doing this, Henry won't be able to see it, but he will be able to hear it. And um, I'll just kind of read some of the things. A lot of times these trailers, they don't have audible but visual stuff so here is the trailer for the 1999 movie Stand the trench i want to assure you men when you set off over the top you'll be able to slow palms light your pipes and march all the way to bap home before you meet a single live german 
Battle of the Psalms, June 1916. Eight feet wide. First platoon to kick it into German lines gets a barrel of beer. Hey, Billy, that bottle of beer's as good as one pound. 600 miles long, the trench. Man-made, God-forsaken. So what's it like? You don't have time to be fighting for long. When you go over the top, you're in another world. He was stupid because he didn't listen to me. They're just sitting there, waiting for us. 7.30. But that's broad daylight. Starring Daniel Craig. Get the table. Killian Murphy. Do we do nice that? We wait. Ben Norshar, Danny Dreyer. The Trench. Now, this is a very good movie. Now, being the fact that I'm a World War II historian and not a World War I historian, I didn't fall for the problems that we face where you start nitpicking uniforms and all that problems. And so that, right. so that was good for me. But one of the things I realized about this movie being shot in 1999, it probably would not do well today because it is a slow burn. Mm-hmm. You know, you're as old as I am. We remember things like the alien where the alien, you couldn't see it for the first 20 minutes of the movie. Right. Nowadays with all these new action all these new movies, it's as soon as the credits start rolling the action. It's it's nonstop action oh, yeah. for two hours. Right. It's in your face with an explosion or something. But this movie being one filmed in the nineties and we're all about slow burn, and the fact that they're trying to build the anticipation and show you the hurry up and wait aspect of the military. And here it is two days before, and these guys are sleeping in this eight foot wide trench with has 15-foot walls or 12-foot walls. They, they actually made a comment, you know, this trench dug so deep because anytime they see our heads, snipers will hit us. Mm-hmm. And they just show the the monotony, the boredom, the hardship. of. And there's a few little action scenes from mortar strikes and snipers, but basically there's very, much like we're, we're going to get into here momentarily, Dunkirk, there's very little action for this probably an hour and a half long movie until they go mm-hmm. up and over at the end. But um, it's for a World War One movie. It's on Amazon Prime. It's if you have Amazon, it's streaming free. Um, definitely check it out. You know, if you like 1916, which was a great flick, uh, this kind of goes into it. It's always fun to see actors now who are real big into things back when they're getting their start. But um, it's it was it was a pretty good little flick, and um, when they went up and over at the end. Now I don't know if. Not to spoil our alert, but we know what happens at that battle. But when they went up and over at the end, what struck me as odd, I don't know if it was artistic licensing on the behalf of the director because it was the final scene. They went up and over, but it wasn't charge. They weren't hauling mm-hmm. ass and running. It, was, it reminded me more of a slow revolutionary war, shoulder to shoulder, just walk across the battlefield with bayonets drawn. <laughs> and now if that is the way that they fought World War One, it no no blank that they lost 60,000 cats that mm-hmm. day because once again, they weren't running. They weren't zigzagging. They weren't run, 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 drop fire. It was just a slow walk with your bayonets, just walking. Well, I've always heard, and, and now world war one is not my thing at all, but I've always heard that they had those, they still 
had somewhat to a degree the Napoleonic tactics mm-hmm. of what you just described. Yeah. Mixed with the horrific modernity of a machine gun. Yeah. They got the loose yes. guns. Yes. And, you know, 60,000 guys dying a day. Yeah. Uh, and then they, you know, quickly that, but I am no expert on World War One, but I have kind of always heard that. Yeah, it, it was, and it made for a great final scene because when you're walking that slow, you, they got real artsy with it. And like when somebody got hit, they paused on them for a second and, mm-hmm. and kind of showed the tragedy of it. Uh, there is one scene that was really pretty gruesome where a couple of guys got hit by an artillery strike and it wasn't one of those, you know, they show them and it was, boom, they're gone. It was, you heard the sound, you heard this, you know, and then guys walking down the trench, he turns a corner and there's just pieces of them laying there and it was a slow pan. And so it was definitely a gritty, dirty movie. But Mm -hmm. um, if you guys are into World War I stuff or you're looking for something to change up your repertoire a little bit, um, look at us using fancy words, repertoire. Um, Mm -hmm. Definitely go to Amazon and check out um, the trench. Now we're going to reactivate this and we're going to play the trailer of Dunkirk because Henry has some thoughts on this. And, um, I've, uh, well, we'll play the trailer and then we will go and I don't know, maybe this feature will work pretty well on YouTube and we can use it more in the future. So here we go. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. soldier walking into the waves because he's so desperate it's almost like he thinks he's going to swim back to England. He's coming back round. He's coming back round! This summer. Where are we going? Dunkirk. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go there, we'll die. Hope is a weapon. Survival is victory. see it from here what home dunkirk now this is one of those movies that i'm glad i practice a lesson that i learned from growing up in ohio and going to cedar point or kentucky when the latest or king's island down in cincinnati when the latest greatest roller coaster comes out 
and everybody's talking about how great, ooh, the Manus is awesome. The, the Raptor's fantastic. You hear all this hype, you hear all this build up, and you stand in line, you're all nervous, and you ride it, and like, well, that was cool, but I don't know what all the hype was about. And so <laughs> that that's a lesson I've taken in life where I don't allow myself to fall into hype for anything. I wait until I, I, people talk about things. I don't go check out trailers. I don't go look at fan sites to see the early write-ups on stuff. I, and I, the argument can be made that maybe I'm missing out on life, but I find if I don't fall into the hoopla and this pre-release circus of things, I go in with a level steady expectation. And you have preconceived notions. And I tend to be more excited about things. But when it comes out with like Dunkirk and all the publicity they put into it and all that, um, I'll save my thoughts. What were yours? You just recently watched it, so it's fresh in your head. Yeah, I watched it on Netflix. Um, I had heard that it was really well received. I mean, it looked like it got rave reviews. Um, I, I got to be honest, man, I was kind of underwhelmed. So I watched it again. Um, I liked it a little better the second time, you know, as you said earlier, Jeff and I are both really big aviation guys. So the scenes with the Spitfires taking on the, the 109s, Tom Hardy, uh, I think they took on a Heinkel 111 too. Um, you know, I was really watching those with a lot of interest. One thing that, did you ever hear of a movie? It was actually a Czechoslovakia movie called the dark blue world. No. Uh, came out back in the early 2000s. It was about some a couple of Polish guys who went and fought in the Battle of Britain, as we know a lot of them did. Um, I thought the aerial scenes in that movie were far better than Dunkirk. To me... Now, was that movie... That, not to cut you off, but was that movie, was that done with real planes or CGI? Oh, I'm sure it wasn't CGI, if it's as old as you state it was. I don't think it was CGI. I think it was real planes. Do, um, do you think? You know, do you think on that note that you would think with CGI your options are limitless? As long as you can draw a plane on a computer, you have right. options. But I think maybe what tends to happen is since you're relying on people with computer skills and you're not actually flying real planes, you don't get the majesty of what the planes can physically do, and you don't have the right. experts on site i.e. the pilot saying here's what we can do here's a scene we can create and maybe that's why when you have think of it like the old 70s and 80 car chase scenes and movies like just you know bullet and all those were, were just the long long drawn out car chase scenes and then nowadays um with the cgi version of the car chase scene it's just missing something maybe it's the authenticity mm -hmm. i don't know but something's clearly missing well, I just felt like the, the aerial combat scenes were, were just kind of bland to me. I mean, when I see an aerial combat scene, you know, those airplanes and, and Damon Stout, the guy that I'm collaborating with on this film about VMF-114, the Marine Fighter Squadron at, at Peleliu, we've had this conversation because there are going to be some aerial sequences in that dock that we're doing. Those airplanes were living, breathing things. They're going through turbulence. They're they're squeaking, they're rattling. The guys are bouncing up and down in their seats. There's turbulence, you know, you know, and especially if there's shell burst nearby, they're not just. It's more like going back to the roller coaster analogy. It's more like the old school roller coasters on the tracks versus the one on the rails. The ones on the rails are nice and smooth, but the ones on the track are jerky. They're bad on your lower back and they shake. Yes. And that's what the airplanes guys, are like. 
they're bouncing up and down in their seats. You know, they're straining against their straps. They're catching shell bursts. There's, you hear, I mean, those planes, I mean, they're getting the hell beat out of them every day just from the maintenance standpoint. So I don't know. The, the aerial combat team, maybe people out there who fly warbirds every day are saying, oh, no, it's the most incredible thing they've ever done. And then I guess I just speak under correction. But in my opinion, the, the aerial scenes just seem really bland. Another thing, when they would fire their guns, you hardly saw any tracers. Yeah. Uh, maybe they didn't have tracers that early, but generally you would see a little bit more, you know, like you can see where your rounds are going, but it just seemed like there wasn't a lot there. Um, so, yeah, I had the same thought. It's like the planes were on rails. Um, Problem I had with the movie, and I'll have to go back and watch it a second time. Um, I was a big movie buff back in the 90s, and I talked about this on my other podcast the other day. You know, when I was between the ages of 18 and 25, I was struggling. I couldn't afford cable, so I'd go to the video stores, and I'd buy the you know, the third off tapes for $3 and we'd go home. I had a whole VHS library of every, you know, every Kevin Smith movie, Lockstock, you know, Guy Ritchie movies, all these movies, Pulp Fiction, all the Quentin Tarantino stuff. And then when I got in my mid twenties and all that, I same things, just instead of buying VHS tapes, we'd gotten by DVDs at Blockbuster and then at Target, whatever. And I, and if I open this closet, my podcast studio, I got about 200 DVD movies. Well, and, and the last movies I've gotten in the last probably 12 years were gifts, which was I got the box set of the Pacific for Christmas. I got Band of Brothers and I got a few World War II movies that are given me here and there. Um, and I reason I say all that is I'm into movies. I'm into stylization. Um, going back to Quentin Tarantino, he you if you don't think Quentin Tarantino changed the way movies were made, you weren't alive when Pulp Fiction came out. <laughs> Pulp Fiction was the first mainstream movie that did the time jump. The sequences right. where things, the movie actually, the beginning of the movie is actually near the end of the movie. And it's things, a nonlinear. It's a nonlinear, but by the time, time it gets to the end of the physical movie, all the pieces fall in place, and Quentin Tarantino does it excellently, and it all falls in place. It's logical, it's conducive, and you're like, oh, okay, I, you, you walk away and you get it. Problem I had with Dunkirk is they tried to do the Pulp Fiction style time jump, and it was hard to follow. It's like one minute it's he's flying and he's it's light out. Next minute it's super dark. But then later, oh wait a minute, I think he was flying through a burning oil field. It's like to me the time jump and how they tried to do the Pulp Fiction Quentin Tarantino style nonlinear. Hope all the pieces fall in makes sense at the ending. That didn't make sense. Well, and that on that exact note, so yeah, you could tell like the, the guy was supposed to be getting close to being out of fuel. Yeah. And Spitfires had notoriously short duration anyway, which was a problem in the Battle of Britain because they only had so much time once they got over the channel. But um, yeah, you, you, he's obviously running short on gas. He may even have a leak too, if I remember right. I, I can't remember for sure. But um, toward the end of the movie, and, and this is when it really, like you're talking about, but it's really getting artistic. He runs out of gas. He's gliding. It seemed like he's gliding forever. I'm like, man, I didn't know a warbird could glide that far. And then, then I realized the second time, okay, they're, this they're is slowing time down. Yeah. So he's, we're getting kind of poetic here. And then like it was late afternoon. And by the time he's done gliding, it's like night. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and then he doesn't he shoot a flare into the spit to, to blow it up so the Germans don't get it. And he's yeah. standing there, you know, glowing, you know, his face is glowing in the flames. And it's very dramatic. Um, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm panning the movie at all because I'm I'm not saying it wasn't a good movie. I just there was poor there's some poor execution on it. And there, I, I, there was a lot of stuff I just had trouble following. Like when the guys got in the they got in the in the boat right mm-hmm. there, you know, and it's like they're they're down in the hole. They're trying to get the stop the leak or get the water out. They're trying to I can't remember exactly, but they're trying to get the thing. Oh no, they're they're hiding in the hole, waiting for high tide to come in because if they wait outside, right. they're at risk of being shot by snipers. And so, okay, right, all right. And then they hear activity outside, and I'm like, why doesn't somebody peek up above a hatch and just see what's going on? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that that was a little hard to follow. And and going back to the poorly executable of the time jump as we said earlier and as you heard in the preview the guy who plays in peaky blinders he gets shot down the the armada of voluntary boat one of them finds him it wasn't until it was explained to me later that he got shot down during that dog fight he was like tom hardy's wingman but the whole time jump thing I thought that guy just was from a different squadron had nothing to do with that battle because once again the execution of the time jump was so done so poorly because they find him at the beginning of the movie and mm-hmm. the visual of the battles happen near the end, middle or end of the movie. And it just, once again, the time jump was so bad that you had a hard time. Oh, he was one of the people in that squadron because he had his mask on when they showed him in the squadron. So he didn't realize who it was. And mm-hmm. so to me, my biggest down, you know, obviously they can't add more action than actually happened in Dunkirk. So, you know, you had a bunch of guys stuck on the beach. So it's not like they're going to have a bunch of action scenes. Well, um, yeah. But go ahead. Well, I was so the older gentleman in the boat, you know, when they picked him up. Yeah. The old guy who had the boat and his son. Which was all true. You can go on Google and find the images of him. Sure. So, but then there was another kid who jumped on with them at the dock before they left out. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought both those young guys were his. Well, it's the, the guy who ends up, the pilot pushes him down yeah. the stairs and the guy ends up getting head injured. He was like he a, a school kid or a neighbor. Yeah. I thought, yeah, he. Exactly. But you I thought, thought he was, was like the other young guy's brother. brother. Yeah. In other words, they were both like the old guy was their dad. I didn't realize till the second time and, and it still wasn't clear. And I'm like, wait, okay. Because when the, when the kid died, they were just going like, Oh, he's dead. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. awful. Nate. That's Bobby you know, down. Thought, the, that's Bobby from down the street. We don't really care. <laughs> like they're not very upset when his own son just got killed. But, but then I realized, well, that's not his son. But so that, I had to watch it the second time to get that, but and plus, um, plus you got to do the mental gymnastics. That oh yeah, the kid was a little more shocked because he had never seen death, but his dad was a World War One veteran, so he right. already was kind of hardened and compartmentalized. This isn't the first time he had seen a seventeen-year-old kid die, but you would still think after twenty years it would, <laughs> you know, and in that situation. But he was a stern taskmaster, and his job was to get the job done. But one of the things this movie brings up, and I and I, I wanted to bring up a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Pacific, not the Pacific, the series, but the Pacific is in the op, the theater of operations. Mm-hmm. I don't think our normal counterparts realize how lucky we got that both of the largest parts of the axis of evils were ran by narcissistic egomaniacs who would not listen to anybody else and made all the bad decisions that they did, which allowed us to win the war. <laughs> There's so many times Hitler just blew off his soldiers, his his 
his commander's, you know, of his military suggestions, like what happened to Dunkirk. Instead of finishing mm-hmm. him off, he, for some reason, decided to go elsewhere. And we've seen that time after time with the Japanese and, you know, the Empire and some of the bad decisions they made that you would think if, if the Japanese Empire and if Germany, well, obviously, if Germany was, if Hitler was actually a, a right-mind thinking person, it would have never happened anyhow. So, of course, he was a sure. lunatic. But if he would have just listened to some of his his war-hardened commanders and didn't take control of everything his own way and just like the infighting between the, the Japanese Navy and the Army and the lack of communication and all the honor and the lying and the misinformation on battle reports, if they all were a little more honest with each other and um, opted to listen to other people's suggestions, that war would have went a completely different way or lasted a whole hell of a lot longer. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's as we know, you know, certainly after the July 1944 plot on Hitler, I mean, his generals were in fear of saying anything, mm-hmm. which is why he's making these these completely unilateral decisions that his military commanders are, are, are they realize there's, no, we're not going to push through and create a bulge and get to Antwerp, which will then cause division among the allies and cause their entire allied structure to fall apart, and then we're going to win the war. They knew that wasn't going to happen. But Hitler had it in his mind that if we could just get to Antwerp, the British will get pissed off at the Americans, and the Americans will get pissed off at the British. And then, hey, man, they'll just start infighting, and then we'll just march on to victory. You know, his generals knew that wasn't going to happen, but they were, again, after the July 44 plot, they were terrified to say anything to him because they would be rounded up and shot. You know, by contrast, Joe Stalin who certainly was not a Sunday school teacher, as we know, not a nice guy, not somebody you want to work for. Um, But he would listen to his generals. Mm -hmm. There was one, I can't remember which offensive it was, but he's meeting with his, his generals and one of them wants an envelopment. He's wanting a single thrust. And he says, okay, I'm going to walk out of the room and let you two debate it. I'll come back in a few minutes and we'll go from there. And so he does, he walks back in, he goes, okay, are we decided single thrust and his, his general rock. And I'm not even, I'm not even sure who it was. That's right. Pull the book back out. But he says, no, sir, I really think we need to do an envelopment. And Stalin said, okay, on your head, be it then. And obviously, if it doesn't work out, he's going to get executed. But at least Stalin would listen. And don't get me wrong. Um, we had our infighting, especially in the Pacific, uh, amongst the different commanders. But we, all of them had the all understanding of hierarchy and command structure and yeah. what the role in the military was. And so you basically, if you had issues with another commander or uh another ranking person who outranked you, you basically kept those opinions for your diary and your wife. And that's where most of that stuff. And, and that's why, despite some of the, you know, the opinions Patton may have had about, you know, Eisenhower or whoever, he kept them to himself or to his, his diary and did what he was told for the most part. And despite his opinions on certain operations, you know, he understood the, the job of his role in the military and, and the greater good, and so did everybody else, that we didn't suffer the uh, losses that, the uh, you know, that 
J- Japan and and Germany did because of the insanity and lack of structure in their hierarchy. Well, uh, yeah, and the infighting in, with the Japanese army and the Japanese navy is just legendary. But I never you realized know, the service rivalry was just horrific. But I never realized how bad it was until I read that Guadalcanal book and. Basically, the army had no idea the navy had been building an airport on Guadalcanal, and once they found out that all oh, the Americans are coming to Guadalcanal because they want to take over this airport and use it as a st- an airport we didn't know about until yesterday to use it as a staging area to bomb us, I guess we have no choice but to allocate troops, logistics, you know, and equipment to go defend this island to defend this airport that the navy's been working on for nine and a half months that no one bothered to at least send us a memo about. And so it's things like that where all of a sudden you're pulling, you know, judgment, snap judgment troop movements and reallocation of, you know, equipment to different islands to to protect equipment and locations that you didn't even know was in your arsenal. It's like, come on. It's just, it's, and once again, that all came to our benefit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's just crazy. Um, I had a weird experience. Um, for those of you who've read any of the Band of Brother books, I'm sure if you read enough of them, there's one little statement or observation that was made about their training. And once I say it, you'll be like, oh, I remember that. You know, they would say, oh, you know, Camp Tacoga, you know, this, the 101st Airborne was the first infantry unit where the guys who trained together went off to combat together. Prior to them, You'd go to boot camp, and then you'd be assigned different regiments, different platoons, whatever, and maybe 20 people out of your entire class would be serving with you in another division somewhere. But the Airborne was the first to train together, fight together. And one of the things that they would always say is, we train so much that you could identify someone by their silhouette at night. Mm -hmm. And... The cynics among us, or people who never served, maybe often think, "Well, is that really possible? I mean, you're all wearing the same uniforms, got the same helmets on, roughly the same size. I guess maybe it's true. I'd have to take your word for it. But you know, you're you're like, how how is that possible? Now, I haven't thought about this in years. I was after watching 15 minutes of, as I said earlier, Red Wings, <laughs> Red Tails, and then watching the trench. I turned on YouTube while I was editing some fishing videos and a video came up from 2017. It was, uh, it was on a page of one of my fellow Floridian World War II reenactors of the Bouvet brothers. They have a little channel called, I think it's Bravo 13 productions or whatever. And this video came up entitled the, uh, markets and Marion World War II armor event. Okay. So I'll turn it on in the background and now, I know the Bouvet brothers, they do airborne, and what they do is they hide their GoPro and their medic, their first aid pouch that the airborne wear on the helmet. And more often than not, they're in one of their vehicles. Their dad owns a real nice weapons carrier, but this video starts out. There's not a, not a whole lot of editing. It's one of the Bouvet brothers is the second person in a column, and then there's a person in front of them, and then 20 yards away is one of Rabbi Rob's Sherman tanks. And with the position and how short uh, one of the Bavay brothers is, the person in front of him who was leading the column, only thing you could see was his helmet, his shoulders, no musette bag, no haversack, just his battle suspenders, his M1 belt, and then his, 
his waist and his legs were cut off by the, by the bottom of the screen because the, the cameraman was walking so close to him. But I'm watching it for two and a half seconds, and I said, that's Art Dersheimer. <laughs> and once again, can't see his rank. No one can't see his hair. All you see is a helmet, shoulders, a belt. And because I've been doing reenactments with this guy for 10 years, as soon as three three seconds later, he yells, and it was Art Dersheimer. It's like, holy shit. I guess the guys in Band of Brothers weren't lying. That they when were you, right. When you they work right. with someone with long enough, even though they're wearing the exact same uniform as you, you can tell people even from just a view behind them of their, their shoulders and the back of their helmet. I That's just, interesting. Just the way his shoulders were shaped and how well his uniform fit and just his gait. I knew exactly who it was. Even though I wasn't at that event, I had never seen that video before. It was the very first three and a half seconds of that video. And Art has been on this podcast back in the early days. Um, it, it was him. I could hear his voice. And it, it struck me. It's like, holy crap. I've been working with that guy long enough that I, too, can know who it is just by seeing him well, walk. there you go. It's, you know, you never really think about things like that. But it's just it just goes to show that I guess it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since we're talking about movies, I'm not going to get into this movie because we've bad we've dead panded enough. And no, I'm not talking about the thin red line. I'm talking about oh, God. I'm wa- <laughs> this thing. I haven't been bringing that up. <laughs> I said I'm not talking about the thin red line. I'm talking about wind talkers. Now we know that that movie breakers. That movie's bad in and of itself. But I do have a Roku TV in my shop, and sometimes I'll put on noise behind me. I will say, if you delete all of Wind Talkers and just put that opening scene of Saipan where the planes are coming down, and that's most where most of the budget must have been spent. The pyrotechnics are great. They got mm-hmm. the bunkers, the Japanese soldiers. If you just isolated that opening scene and just threw it up on YouTube, you'd be impressed with it. That opening Saipan attack scene, if you cut out Nicolas Cage and all the guys, but just the wide shot of the planes coming in, the artillery strike, the explosions, the pyrotechnics, the Japanese soldiers manning their guns. I was like, that was well, well done. Too bad the rest see, of the movie was just garbage. I'm, I know I've heard you because I did, you know, that's another episode I watched before I joined you guys was where you were talking about movies and all that. And you were talking about windbreakers. I never saw that one. Have you I gone? think that came out when I was on my World War II hiatus. Yeah, it came out in the early 2000s. I think when I lived in California, um, okay. it came out. Maybe it came out then. I was still, I hadn't gone on hiatus yet. But I, 2002. I okay. okay. And I just never saw it. Well, just to give you a glimpse, Nicolas Cage plays a battle-hardened sergeant who... Uh, you lo- lost me right there. He lost, well... If that didn't lose you, Christian Slater would lose you after that. But hey, come on, guys. He, he plays a battle-hardened captain who lost his troops in another in another um, mission before Saipan. But when he has these flashbacks and the guys are doing their oh, they're fighting, they're getting shot, and they're dying, it's like this movie was put out in 2002, which means it was produced in probably 1999 or 2000, which we know you're capable of putting great stuff out because that's when Band of Brothers was made. But the sure. the action and the dialogue and the scenes alone of just the flashbacks of his original platoon being wiped out is so 1970s cliche, just bad. The acting in it and even the... Now, I know we Jeff says, you know, we shouldn't do this. And I agree, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't nitpick the uniforms. But... <laughs> 
when but they need to be accurate. Yes, and I don't know what happened. I don't know if Man the Line wasn't around. I don't know if World War II impressions wasn't making boondockers at the time. But they got Nicholas Cage down with his Tommy gun, and of course he wears his dog tags like a choker. Um, oh, and he's God. he's leaning up against the tree, and the camera set on the ground to get a nice close up shot. But the sole of his foot of his boondockers have the tread pattern of remember the hiking boots we all wore in the eighties with the big red shoelaces, the yeah, brown, yeah. and they had like the little cross patterns on the bottom. Uh-huh. For whatever reason, the boondockers they bought for him had that style 1980 hiking boot, super grip, off-roading, mad max, mad, you know, soles on it. So, like, even the soles, and I get it, wardrobe is wardrobe, but I'll say this. When they were down here in Florida shooting uh, Walking Point, there was a scene where the star gets hit by a grenade, and he's on the ground, and <laughs> R.J. Nevins wanted to do this cool little pan shot where his helmet was laying in the foreground and the actor was in the background, but he had the liner facing him. And now I helped the actor get their leggings on and I was looking at their stuff and I knew that that helmet had a Korean War liner in it. And so I I told Jeff, I said, we got to stop this shot. He's like, why? I said, the community will pick us apart. So I, I kind of... Because you know Jeff was there as a historian, yeah, and I just met line. Jeff like two days before, and here <laughs> I am coming in, and I told RJ, "Say, hey, that's a Korean War liner, and and that's a great shot. Let's just rotate the helmet." So we put the liner away from the camera so that he can still get the shot of the helmet being there, but you wouldn't have this big glaring, incorrect liner because the community would just pick that apart. Sure. And so it's like, once again, where was the guy back in two thousand two on a set for Wind Talkers when? Nicholas Cage has his big waffle waffle stomper there mm-hmm. with the wrong tread pattern on it right in front of the camera. Just stuff like that. It's just like, but more importantly than the wardrobe, just the acting and it was just, and not even Christian Slater so much, just the ensemble cast. It was just the way they had them talking and acting. It was just super gung-ho, like so dated, like dialogue. It's just bad. Mm-hmm. I, I heard... That's probably why I never saw it because I didn't hear anything good about it. If you ever enjoy bad movies and you want to sit back <clears> and <throat> crack open a Miller Lite and make fun of a movie, and and Windhawker's a good one to start out with. <laughs> it's almost like we should have a um, a bad movie force watch well, one day. Well, I tell you now. So to shift gears, to, to, here's a movie that one of my all-time favorite World War II movies. Probably not the most accurate, but damn it, I love this movie. Kelly's Heroes. I, Clint Eastwood, Don Rickles, Telly Savalas. I'm going to uh, lay myself down on the mercy of the court and say that I've never seen that movie. Oh, man. I will write it down. I love Kelly's I Heroes. I will track it down, and I will watch it this weekend. And I, Donald Sutherland was oddball. I, I'm familiar with it. I, I'm familiar with the Donald Sutherland character. I've seen his memes and pictures all over the, the internet. <laughs> you could probably use some armor. <laughs> but I've yet to see Kelly's Heroes. And actually, there's a really fantastic yes, reenactment indeed. group who I've done work with at the, the Marine Corps events called Kelly's Zeros. And they do great. They're, they're authentic, uh, their authenticity is on point. Like four of their members are actually uh, were active serving Marines at the time. I think one of them just got to the end of his service, but those guys are on point. So um, Kelly's Heroes, I've not seen it, but I heard it's a great flick. It, it's just one of those great, you know, it came out in like 1970. 
Um, so I didn't see it till a few years later because I would have only been five years old at the time. But my brother, I, you know, I, that's one of those movies I remember my brother and his friends going to see it at the theater. And he goes, my brother's like seven years older than me. So, yeah, I've got it on DVD, man. I just, that, that's the first World War II movie that I'll let Jack watch, my son. Yeah. You know, first first one I let him watch when he was like eight, nine years old. We, we watched Kelly's Hero. That, I could pull it out right now, man. I love that movie. Well, speaking of Tom Cruise and Hitler and people trying to kill him, what, what did you think of Valkyrie back in 08? You know, here's what I said about Valkyrie, because I went and saw that. I came away from it. I thought it was a really good movie. Okay. I mean, I hate to say anything, you know, good about Tom Cruise, but I just, I came away from it. And I said, uh, cause I went to see it with a friend of mine and I said, man, Tom Cruise is like, he's like the high school quarterback that everybody hates him. Cause he's arrogant. He gets the girls, he gets whatever he wants. Nobody likes him, but he's going to go out there homecoming night, cross town rival and throw the touchdown pass. You know, I listened to the Adam Carolla podcast. He's going to make it happen. I mean, you hate him, but he's going to make it happen. I mean, sorry, I didn't mean that. No, I listened to Adam Carolla podcast, and that's he's he has the same opinion. He's like, you know, everybody mad dogs Tom Cruise. He said, but the guy's had an active movie career for over thirty years. No one works harder yeah, he's than doing something right. No one works harder than Tom Cruise, and he said, I guarantee you, right now, no matter what time it is, Tom Cruise is somewhere doing thirty push-ups. <laughs> he's just the I guy. Mean, I'm telling you, he I, outworks I, everybody. It, it was, I sat there and I watched it and I'm like, you know, and of course he, he they come flying in in the Yonkers JU-52 and you got the 109 flying over him. I'm like, well, I don't know if the 109s would have been flying over that low, but they're putting on a show for the Fury, you know, but I'm just like, I don't care. It's a, look at the, enjoy the 109. And I don't know how exactly accurate it was. I can't remember because I haven't seen it. I think it came out, what, 2006 or something like that? Oh, wait. Um, 2008. Yeah. Hey, okay. I will say um, that I wasn't as heavy in the World War II back then, and so I wasn't deluded with my knowledge, and so I got to just enjoy it as a casual observer. And so I believe I liked it back then. That may be one that I might have to go back and rewatch now that I know what I know and see if my yeah. opinion changes. But I thought it was a it, good movie back then. I mean, it was it was an engaging movie. You know, I, I'm not trying to get into the to the stitch counting yeah, stuff, which, you know, we've talked about, you shouldn't do too much of that, but things do need to be accurate. I, I don't know how accurate all the, the equipment uniforms were, but I'm sitting there watching it, you know, and I, I'm a man, like it shows him come home and there's this beautiful wife and his children, you know, I'm a sentimental dad. You are Jeff is. And I'm just thinking when he, when he walked out that next day, he knew he was never going to see his wife and kids again. Well, um, more, and, and and what was important to me once again, being just the regular old run of the mill, non-historian novice, it presented me with a story that I knew nothing about. And I think that's one of the greatest things of that particular movie is I think at least when it came out, most of people, at least in this country, didn't know that there was an assassination attempt by the Germans on Hitler. We just kind of thought they all fell in line and yes, sir, I'll do what you tell us. And, you know, right. and it was nice to see that there was resentment and concern and, and seeing which way the wind was blown and not every one of them were completely brainwashed to exactly. believe in the way he believed and that some of them were quote unquote free thinkers who were just doing their jobs as patriotic Germans to fight for their country. But 
And so, it was, but it really it pulled you in because you yeah. know toward the end, and you, and you you can see what's going to happen. You can see it's not going to work, and it's been a lot of years since I've seen it, so I can't remember the granular detail. But you know, like he and the older gentleman who was against Hitler, he and he and Stout was Tom Cruise was playing Stauffenberg, correct? I believe so. I believe that's right. So the, the protagonist, the guy, kind of really got the whole plot going in there. Like they're sitting there they're both on the phone and they've got different, you know, it was like precincts reporting in on who's with them. And he kept saying the third district or the fourth and Gallweiter is with us or whatever. Yeah. Klaus von Stauffenberg. He was a colonel. But you can tell, I mean, they're, they're just clutching at straws and you can tell they're going to lose this thing. It's not going to end well. And if I remember correctly, I think they did a really good job of putting you into the position where you felt nervous for them that they were going to get caught. Like, because as you were saying, it was just a few handful of cats who were not only not trying to get caught by Hitler's guards, but let the word leak out. And so they, I believe I'd have to watch again. I I remember having like kind of a, I felt the nervous tension of, are they going to pull this off? Are they going to get caught? Going to get arrested? You know, very much shot. And, And they did a really good job of building that anticipation in the movie. When they, when all of them are in that room toward the end or pretty close to the end. And, and the, the general who was a real jerk, I think his name was Prune. And like, he didn't, he took a, he, he despised Stauffenberg from the first time Cruz's character meets him, but it was, you know, he was a Hitler loyalist and it was obvious that the plot was not going to succeed. And I guess the bomb had already detonated and the conference table shielded Hitler from it. And they knew they failed. And he comes in, and, he, and when he says, you know, you're all sentenced to death, any last messages for your wives and children? Again, you know, as a sentimental dad, I'm just like, oh, my God. Just um, the nausea that would have been in your stomach in that moment. And, you know, the, the guy who's Stauffenberg's older ally is like, you know, I would like a pistol, please, for personal reasons, and you know, because he's just going to do the honorable thing and kill himself right there. And, I, I mean, you're just, yeah, it was a very engaging film i mean because i'm putting myself in their spot like Mm -hmm. they're trying to get rid of the maniac yeah and they're not going to succeed and the maniac is still at large that's one of the things i like about the books i read um you know we've talked about before jeff's really into logistics and the and the layout of the battle where me personally i like the first-hand accounts because to me personally i find it more engaging like you were just saying about valkyrie that when i'm reading the book i'm like holy shit, this actually, this person existed. This actually happened to this person. And when you can put yourself in that position and realize how horrible of an experience that was, just not only the the fighting, but, you know, in the case of the Pacific, just living in those horrible conditions. And when it's well-written, to me, it's more, um, it's more attaching. I can, I don't want to put the book down. Whereas if I, I'll pull up a book that gets into logistics and, you know, talking about, troop movements and dates and this and that and just names and names and names. I'll read it, but I, I don't have the can't put it down um, aspect. It's not as engaging. Yeah, aspect as in movies are the same way. Are you familiar with Rotten Tomatoes website? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Here's a fun game. Uh, so I just looked. Valkyrie, 62%. So it's considered uh, fresh by the top critics. Over 198 reviews, 62% of them love the movie. Audience score, 65 um, so that just means basically the general public felt the same. So basically, that is a viewable movie. For fun, let's put in Wind Talkers. 
Man, Rotten Tomatoes, like if you even get 60%, that's with with that, that's pretty good, isn't it? Wind Talkers with top critics, 33%, which is considered rotten. Um, Man, out of 167. Yeah. Audience score was 50. Now, it's a little higher than top critics, but with that being said, it's still considered, you know, not a good movie. When only 50% mm-hmm. of the people, and that's out of, okay, out of 167 of top critics, 33% of them had a positive feeling. Out of 50,000 plus, 50,000 reviews submitted to Rotten Tomatoes, only 50% gave it somewhat of a positive review. Oh, man. So All right, here's 25,000 people thought that movie sucked out of 50. Damning numbers for sure. Uh, what was the Put one? In, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Hold on. Let's do Kelly's Hero because we talked about that one. First. Okay. Kelly's Heroes. Don't hit me with the negative waves, Moriarty. <laughs> Kelly's Heroes, 1970. Don Rickles, Clint Eastwood. Uh, okay. You said he enjoyed that movie. 78% with the top critics yes. out of 23 reviews. Out of 25,000 audience members, 88% loved the movie. So there it has you go. 88% out of audience score, 78% out of the top critics out of 23 reviews versus 25,000 reviews. And uh, let's let's do the movies. Kelly ta- Smallis' character, Big Joe, was just genius. Man. Let's just do the movies we talked about, and then we'll do the one that you said. Dunkirk, Rotten Tomatoes score. You want to guess? Make a game out of it? Mm. What do you think Well, be- because I know it got such good reviews and, and was – 75. Well, you have two cho- you have two chances. You can give me the top critic score, which is going to be different, and then you can tell me what the thought the the regular Joe thought of it. So All right, top critics 80. Okay, what about audience? Mm, 78. Top critics certified fresh at 92% out of 463 reviews. Audience was a little lower out of 50,000 plus reviews, 81%. And so, okay, uh, I was closer on the audience. The general Joe Schmoes of the world, um, they liked it. Probably the, the more guys like us were probably a little bit rougher on it. Okay, The Trench, 1999's The Trench, the World War I movie. Uh, da, 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 da. Is it not out here? Oh, it might help if I put an R for trench, <laughs> not the tench. <laughs> uh, the trench, 1999. You're not going to give me... Oh, here we go. Oh, they had a bunch of different movies called The Trench. Oh, okay, this is interesting. There's, there's only four reviews from top critics, so it, there's not enough to register a vote. So you got a big, just a, nothing. Audience score out of a thousand, it only has forty-two percent. So the audience wow. were not a fan. Now the question is: Is when did these reviews come in? Did they come in in nineteen ninety-nine or twenty twenty-two? Because as I said, this is a slow burn movie, and it would not stand mm-hmm. up. Um, oh, here we go. Mark W. from December twenty-fifth, twenty nineteen. It limped along at a predictable end. Well, it's history. <laughs> But yes, it has, he didn't like the limping along. It's a slow mover. Um, he gave it a one star. Um, let's see. If I get this guy, Jonathan W., back in 2019, the movie, 
if I could give as less than half a star, I would. This film is basically what feels like 12 hours of talking about going over a trench, preparing to go over the trench, and complaining about going over the trench. No combat, no action, nothing. Spoiler. And when it comes, time comes, the guys go up and over and bam, dead immediately. That's it. End of the movie. Once again, Jonathan W., it's history. That's how it happened. And as I was saying, when they went up and over, they didn't haul ass. They just walked. And, of course, when you got snipers and machine gunners 300 yards away, you're going to get mowed down. And so, right. yeah, I was I was pretty correct when I said that nowadays people wouldn't like it because it's a slow burn. <laughs> Which movie did you want me to put in there? I was just curious about Hacksaw Ridge. What did you think of Hacksaw Ridge? I would have to – well, I'd have to see it again because I saw bits and pieces of it, and I was on my hiatus when I actually saw it. I will say that the the protagonist, the lead guy, his southern accent should have been outlawed. That was painful to sit there. And I am from the cradle of the cradle of Southeastern Conference football. So I know southern accents, okay? Mm-hmm. And it when people try to – look, can I just jump in here and say something about Please. Pacific? I was born in Kentucky. I've lived 19 years in Florida. You don't get any further south than that. So I feel your pain when it comes to the southern accent. Well, when, when and I'm, I thought Joe Mazzella did a great job, okay, in the Pacific playing my dad. And we told him, I mean, I remember having this conversation when he, he called everybody in my family, you know, kind of the, hey, I'm going to play your dad. And I said, man, don't overdo the southern accent. Just, just talk normal. Don't, don't try to, you know, Nicholas Cage, great example of somebody who just butchers a southern accent. And we told Joe, just talk natural. You know, don't, don't overdo that. And I thought he did a fine job. So, well, let's the see dude if, in Hacksaw Ridge. Let's see if we can get a sampling of that accent by playing the trailer. Hold on. Of what now? Hacksaw Ridge. Okay. So, we're going to play the trailer. The problem I had was the boot camp scene. Um, very cliche, the New Yorker. Very cliche. The boot, uh, the uh, the different characters in the boot camp scene had text. He was well, all- that when the guy said was like, "Oh, what do you mean you're not gonna see?" I haven't seen it enough. I'd have to. Well, here, here, here we go. What the hell is your delay, Captain? We're waiting. Waiting it, for what? Private Doss. Who the hell is Private Doss? I was dreaming about being a doctor, but uh, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. But you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. That's going to be my way to serve. This is a personal gift from the United States government designed to bring death to the enemy. I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. She don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. I fell in love with you because you weren't like anyone else. You're saying you could go to prison. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself. So we get an idea, but let's be fair. I know there's clips. Let's go to YouTube and see how the real uh, Desmond Doss talked and see if maybe he had a weird speech impediment, just to be fair. And I think it'll be interesting for the listeners. Desmond Doss interview. So let's just see if maybe he had that same weird voice. 
Meet connecting. Let me pause this ad. Do, 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 do. That's the great thing about YouTube. In fact, you can go for, listen to Desmond oh, Rose yeah. talk. <clears throat> Let me fast forward to the previous. And Pratt. Granted, he's 90 here, but. On a, a nice frame. And I had looked at that picture. Let me see if I can find a younger one. You know, something probably from the 80s or so. Just hearing that little bit, I mean, yeah, very strong. Where, where was he we from? There we go. Let's While see. we're on our way, here's Bob Warren with a word about joy. Georgia, World War II Congressional Medal of Honor winner whose only weapons were his conscience and deep inner convictions tonight. This is your life. Here is our chair of honor. Congressional Medal of Honor winner Desmond Doss. Please sit down. Des, we have many surprises. Mm -hmm. Different. That in 19. Come on. Now, you know what Doss was a medic. I'm trying to get in the top. Commander. Or. Uh, come on. No, no, no. Here he is. Maybe a little bit younger. She was likely dead. Nope. And they come to school. Nope, they showed him in a picture in there. Ah. Anyhow, we're, we're floundering now. I'm just trying to find Desmond Doss talking here. That's his family. Well, and while you're doing that, let me jump. Uh -huh. The point here is not to denigrate his accent. No. It, it's the actor and the way it was portrayed. That's what we're talking about here. I mean, all due respect to Desmond Doss. I sure. Mean, that's not my point at all. No, I was just trying to find a clip to see if maybe... doing a southern accent. Yeah, I was just trying to find a clip to see if maybe he... I had these men up there, and I should... There he is. And they trust me. I didn't feel like I should value my life above my buddies. So I decided to stay with them and take care of as many of them as I could. I didn't know how... It's almost like the actor did it to kind of get the point across that he was supposed to be uneducated. Mm -hmm. And that may be probably what struck your nerve a little bit. That's kind of a common dynamic when mm -hmm. you start. Fortunately, they didn't do that with my dad's character in the Pacific, you know, but. Oh, we didn't do uh, Red Tails. <laughs> okay, 2012's Red Tails featuring Cuba Gooding Jr. Okay, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> what do you think the top audience score was on Red Tails? Oh, I have no idea. Out of 135 reviewers, 40%. So it's rotten. Okay. Now, What's considered the rotten cutoff? 50? Um, okay. So let's see here. Um, and audience score is 58%. I think 60 is considered fresh. Uh, let me go. Okay. What is the tomato meter? Here we go. Uh, the tomato meter score, okay. Uh, when it has less than 60% of the reviews for a movie or TV show are positive, then the tomato is displayed to indicate fresh. So basically anything 60 above is fresh. When a movie or TV show has less than 60% of the reviewers, give it a positive review, then it's green. And then when there, are, uh, when there is no tomato score available, which could be because there hasn't been a release date yet, and... That's what you see when there's no or there's not enough reviews. And then certified fresh. Certified fresh is the status of special distinction awarded for the best reviewed movies and TV shows in order of quality movies, TV shows meet the following requirements. Uh, the consistent tomato meter score of 75% or higher. At least five reviews from top critics. Films in a wide release must have a minimum of 80 reviews. This also applies to films going into limited releases. 
Uh, films and limited release must have a minimum of 40 reviews and only individual seasons of TV shows are eligible. But yeah, so you basically have anything over 60 is basically uh, fresh. Anything under 60 is rotten. And then anything over 80% or 75% is certified fresh. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, Red Tails is 40%. And then 58 with the audience. Midway 2019. You want, yes. Here's be fun. Let's compare the 2019 to the 1976 version. But 2019 version. Da, 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 da. This only thing I liked about the 1976 one was you know you had Charlton Heston, which you had to you had to love him. Now this is going to be interesting. Um, give me a guess. Top critics. Which one? Midway 2019. Mm, I would hope top. Well, it was an independent film. So all the Hollywood heavy hitters were not behind it. So <clears throat> let's say 60%. Okay. And with the audience, 80. Now we're going to play a game because that's the way the world works. I'm going to give you the option to uh, re review your top critic score under the understanding that this movie came out in 2019 and how things were politically in 2019 when it came to patriotism and love for your country and, and yeah, being we a warmonger. We self-hating as much as we are now. So, okay. Well, actually, that's the be- beginning of the self-hating start in 2019 because Trump was in office. Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, okay, so I went 60 with the critics and you're, you're okay, 40 with the critics? 42%. Those sons of bitches. But just to go to show you that critics tend to take politics and worldview into their critiques when they shouldn't. They, they do. When they shouldn't, but they do. Audience score, 92%. That there is a go. huge difference. So the fact that in 2019, you know, we don't want to be rah, 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 let's go kill people. So the critics have to put their politics involved and give it a 42%. Right. When the audience 92%, and which you, me, and Jeff all agree that this movie should have been called the Pacific Theater of Operations um, because it covered a lot of stuff. It did. And I did too. I love it. I love the fact that as we talked about how did they discover it was midway through the um, unencrypted intentional leak of the water system being out. Yep, and all and all the stuff they covered. If you guys have not seen the Midway, Midway movie, the Midway, it's not like an old man. If you haven't seen the Midway, now if you haven't seen Midway, the 2019, go check it out. You and 90% of your your friends. But let's go back. We said Midway, uh, the 19. Yeah, the 76, seven, and you know you had Hal Holbrook playing uh, Roachford. Wasn't wasn't that the guy, the intelligence guy's name? Um, let's see. Did I get that right? I believe yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, my motor's going to bring that other character down there. Okay, Charleston Heston, Henry Fonda, and James Colburn. Interesting. Let me uh, just <clears throat> get an idea here. Only 15 reviews. Oh, wow. I would have thought there had been more. Okay. This just goes to show that I'm not pulling smoke out my ass. Okay. Let's do this. The, tw- the 1976 version of Midway... What do you think the top critics have? There's only 15 mm. reviews. Well, in 1976, I mean, Walter Mears got involved with it. It was, I, I bet they liked it. I'm, I'm going to say they probably went 
70. And the audience score? Oh, God. Oh, man, I'm clutching here. I'm going to say uh, 80. I, I'm guessing. I don't know. Top critics rotten at 47%. But okay. here's what I got excited about. An audience score out of 5,000 plus 71%. But if I go, you can actually look at the reviews. Now, I'm going to scroll down. The first review on this movie from the 1976 version was submitted on November 7, 2001. This okay. critic said it was fresh. The movie drags a bit in the dramatics department. That's probably because the filmmakers were snorting, for, uh, were shooting for accuracy over emotion. Uh, the next critic, June 30th of 2002, gave it two out of five stars, said it's rotten. But the next one, two, three, four, five critics from 2003 to 2003 gave it fresh. 2004, you had two people give it a two out of five, rather dull, although certainly elaborate enough. And then 2004, you got another fresh. So we got one, two, three, four, five, six freshes between years 2001 and 2004. And we got one, two, three, four, five, Six rotten. So it's about it's about even. Mm-hmm. But from 2012 to 2019, it was all rotten. So going again off that baseline well, of getting your politics involved into your movie yeah. critics. Once we got closer to the modern times with how certain oh, people course. feel, it, it reflects in the in the rating. And, but it shouldn't. It should be. There this were, is a movie about things. this. This is how I feel about this. My real life politics shouldn't go into this because unless it's a movie about politics. All right. There were two things with Midway 76 that, that bothered me. Number one, the Japanese spoke English. That's because we're lazy and we that, don't like that, subtitles. Huh? That's because Americans are lazy and we don't like subtitles. Yeah, but I prefer subtitles. And tour, tour, tour. But, yeah. So the Japanese spoke English, which kind of detracted from the authenticity of it. And then the other thing was if, if you've watched Tora 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 and then watched Midway 76, when it shows the capes and the vowels taken off, there's you're like, man, that sure does look just like Tora Tora Tora. That's because Walter Mirish bought that footage cheaper. from... Huh? It's cheaper that way. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. He's like, oh, well, it's Japanese planes taken off from a Japanese character. So Walter Mirish bought that footage from Tora 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 and used it just to show the Japanese planes taking off from their carriers. And I think um, that's so. the same reason why the longest day was shot in black and white. Clearly it was made in the seventies color movies been around since wizard of Oz in the late early forties. Mm-hmm. I think that it was intentionally shot in black and white so that they could overlay the actual war footage that they used at the battleships and all that, which was in black yeah. and white so that it would, the continuity would be there. Cause other than that, there's really, there was no reason to shoot that film in black and white. Right. But um, I think that's going to wrap it up for this movie edition of the What's the Skullbutt podcast, unless you have anything yeah, man, else we, you want to get in there. We had a lot of areas tonight, didn't we? It's so funny. Every every week around the same time, Bailey wants up in my lap as if to say, come on, fella, you've been here long enough. It's time to wrap it up. Wait, wait. Let me see if I can get mine down here. I don't know. She may have already gone to bed. She's already gone to bed. But yeah, you got any um, plugs or anything you need to get out there? Um, yeah, I will be day after tomorrow. Paul would add just having me back on World War II TV. I know I've been talking about that. That's, That's right. finally happening day after tomorrow. Um, it's going to be called the fifth Marines across Bellaloo. 
So it's going to have some cool present day video footage taken by my friend Des, Des Matsutuo, who lives in Palau. Um, and then my pictures, I sent them to Paul from my trip in 1999. So uh, that's coming up Wednesday. And then I think next week I'm trying to line up or Layton's trying to line up me being on the We Happy Few podcast that he and Matt Leach have started. And then he called me yesterday to tell me that Saul David, who I may have mentioned to you, Saul David is a British military historian. He just wrote a book called Devil Dogs about K-35, which is my dad's unit, except it's from Guadalcanal all the way through the end of Okinawa. Nice. So you so can kind of... That's pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's coming out in August, but Saul asked me to write the foreword for it and do a cover blurb for it. And I reviewed, I looked at the manuscript back. I, I told you guys. Yeah, a couple, probably a couple months ago. Uh, so... Leighton wants to, he, apparently he and Saul have talked and Saul was interested in him and me being on their podcast together. So that'll be probably in a couple months or so, but, uh, you know, so yeah, there's, there's stuff popping out there. Um, I got, I got contacted by, um, one of the guys from second armor to ask me to, if I was going to come up to an event, um, I'm looking at my boots. I, I blew the soles out of my boots. I need to take them over to a, uh, cobber. And have them uh, reattached. They're they're not completely blown out. They're separating right in the insole. And I think if I do another event with them, I'm probably going to lose the sole. So hopefully mm -hmm. I can get that done. But uh, there is an event up in um, Florida. They were. Uh, I hopefully I have some more information about it next week. They're supposed to shoot mm -hmm. me an email. But um, let's see here. Um, February 19th, no. Okay, March 25th and 27th, Operation Husky in Green Cove Springs, Florida. Uh, they're putting on the, it's put on by the Military Vehicle Preservation Association. It's very cool. Obviously, Second Armor will be up there with their tanks. There will be mm -hmm. uh, living historians out there and reenactors. So you can go to the tents, see their displays. And then um, it's always interesting to go to a military vehicle preservation association. That's a mouthful event with second armor. Cause when we do reenacting, they have at least three to four M one I mean, Sherman's out there and a Hellcat or two. And uh, that would be awesome. And we have pyrotechnics and I will say from experience from training with them. Um, I've done a lot of cool things reenacting, but when you're laid up in the woods trying to hide, and you got a Sherman tank rumbling down the road behind you, and you're actually bouncing on the ground because <laughs> it's coming up. Yeah. And when they shoot the cannons on those, even though they're blanks, and you're 50 yards away, and the signature blast, the sand bounces off of your pants. It's just there's something about it. And so anybody who's going to be in the Central Florida area around March 25th through the 27th, head up to Green Cove Springs for the Military Vehicle Asso Preservation Association Operation Husky. Um, I'll, I'm, if I can get my boots fixed in time, I will be there. A couple of the guys from Georgia will be there who put on the event that I was at a few months ago. That's cool. And, uh, you guys can see, and they have a long Tom, um, had a long Tom at one event and last son of a bitch goes off and the windshield on your car flexes. And it's once again, they're still shooting blanks, but they're, they're super hot blanks. And so, um, that's a 155, right? Yeah. It's a big, it's a big <laughs> son of a bitch. Man, uh, oh, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to pull the audio. I was doing a, an interview with a living historian in the cab of my Tacoma at, at one of the events, and for whatever reason, they 
they had the the shells to spend, and so like every hour they're shooting a son of a bitch off. And I'm doing an interview, and you hear it going off probably 40 yards away. And I literally had to move my truck because I'm watching my mirror, my windshield going whoop. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna move my truck. But I was doing an interview, and you can hear them going off in the background. So they would shoot the long tom, and then they would fire off rounds from the the Shermans and the Hellcats. So, uh, wow. So that's something we'll get some more information out, get some plugs in to help try to get some people up there to help preserve the the art of history preservation because with COVID and everything else, you know, attendance has been down at some of those things. And so we want to yeah, spread the word and get the word out. But um, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us each week. And if I said so earlier but you missed it please head over to wtspworldwar2.com click on that patreon link sign up and subscribe it's only a dollar a month there's a couple other plans i think the most expensive one seven dollars fifty cents a month and you get a free t-shirt um i'm getting ready to send out some more to this week or this month for some of our patreons and please if you're watching us on youtube or if you're not watching us on youtube go over to youtube look for digital 410 or you can find the link on our website Please go like and subscribe on YouTube. Say, well, why do I want to like and subscribe? It's because this, because YouTube's already playing advertisements on our videos, so why shouldn't we get our beaks wet too? And in order to get our beaks wet, we got to get to that thousand point marker. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We will be back next week with a guest, uh, Preston Stewart from TikTok, who is a West Point graduate and a military podcast host himself. He will join us, and Jeff Copsetta should be back. And so we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>